Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the next edition of the Sports Pro Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the Senior Content Manager here at Sports Pro Media, and as always, joined by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Nick, back from holiday, ready to get back into the groove of things. Hopefully, everything was um, good, sunny, and uh, hopefully a little bit relaxing for you. Yeah, it's amazing when you've got kids on a holiday, It's and you go to a place like I did, which was a big resort built for families. It's both relaxing to be in an environment like that, but also extremely exhausting because it's pretty much intense nonstop the whole the whole time you're there. But good to get a bit of sun and, and get the kids out and about and do something a bit different and had a really good time out there in Spain and just missed the 40 degree heat wave out there, which I am very glad we did because that would have been too much for, for any of us and we would have melted with our, our brittle English uh, skin that we now have over the years uh, developed. Yeah, 40 degrees even for myself is a bit warm. I'd have to ask though, did you, what time did you make it back home yesterday on Sunday? Because one of the things we talked about two months ago was whether or not every sports property should have its own red zone package. Don't know if you got to catch any of the end of it, but yesterday's uh, end to the Premier League season would have been an absolutely wonderful opportunity um, to have a package seeing the way some of those games finished yesterday. Yeah, that was that was incredible. Um, the, and I, I'll answer the question first, which was I was actually driving back from the airport, so really timed that yeah. really badly uh, considering everything that was <laughs> going on. Uh, and I got back just at the end of the second half. And so I was just trying to catch up with what was going on because I'd missed a lot of it and then was sort of fallen out of out of sync with what was going on pretty quickly because everything was moving so fast with all the results and the goals, etc. Um, but yeah, that was a great example of where red zone would really work in the Premier League, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll go ahead and we'll move ourselves on to business. There's a couple of interesting stories we're going to cover today before uh, your interview later. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is the IPL deal is coming up at the end of this year, the, the Indian Cricket League, and that's set to expire at the end of this year. And currently, it's uh, Hot Star, owned partly by Disney, is currently coming to the end of a five-year deal that was originally negotiated for $2.5 billion. Um, and it's come out that uh, Alphabet, owners of Google and YouTube, are now one of the parties interested in getting involved in the next five-year cycle, which is going to more than double in value at you know $5.3 billion is what kind of the expectation is you know in the past we've discussed big tech's role in the broadcast space you know we've talked about amazon getting involved before uh we've talked about facebook apple's recently done a couple of little small deals what about the the ipl is the opportunity that google's you know sort of interested in deciding to get in on this because this isn't a small deal You're talking about f over five billion dollars and something i had to look up for the podcast the U.S. population is about 330 million. It's estimated that the IPL brought in 380 million domestic views last year. So wow. I'm not the world's biggest cricket fan. Um, there's probably people in our audience aren't the world's biggest cricket fan, but it's actually a pretty massive deal for whoever's going to win this. Yeah, it's become a real hotbed for activity. And it feels like over the last few years, we saw a lot of businesses go, hey, the Indian market, really exciting. But actually, the average revenues out there are pretty low. You can only really generate revenues through advertising. That's not really going to play play the right cards for us. Uh, Facebook had a go with La Liga. That didn't really work for them. And so it kind of sort of went quiet a little bit. And over the last couple of years, the IPL um, really has sort of struck gold with not only the monetization side of things, but also being able to attract 
commercial investment from you know the CVCs of the world and a whole bunch of others who are bidding to win you know to earn own a franchise in the IPL itself and it's clear they knew what was coming and they knew that this big deal was around the corner and to think that 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 market's going to generate five billion dollars in a market that was largely seen as a under monetized proposition for many um, broadcasters coming to the market uh, you know a number of years ago is is pretty incredible stuff uh, and all the more exciting and interesting is that yeah Google is actually looking at this or YouTube I, I imagine will be the potential home for this which is pretty extraordinary given you know what we've seen up until till now and what's going to be really interesting to follow here is as part of the from memory from part of the indian laws around media rights and and the tenders it will all has to be it all has to be displayed publicly so you will get to see which of these major um, platforms who are in the running what they're bidding for how serious they are and what you know what they're ultimately paying for it uh, and that's quite a unique thing in the india market to be able to see that so uh, so openly as opposed to other markets where a lot of the the bidding is done behind closed doors um, but look to see yeah this is a really exciting proposition if 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 google and youtube were to win this i mean youtube is incredible at monetizing through advertising um everyone would probably be appreciate that if they've used youtube they know how to do it better than anyone so enough just yet another example of advertising being the driving force of the growth in, in revenue monetization of audiences uh, through ott yeah i think for me it's just interesting because when we've talked about some of the other big tech you know amazon sort of tested the waters you know not going hard on the nfl in terms of the big but just the thursday night or with the Premier League, it didn't go for the majority of the rights. It just selected ones around the Christmas dates. And similar with Apple, they were sort of picking and choosing very specific packages, you know, what they're doing with the NFL, what they're doing with the Major League Baseball. You know, to to go after this seems like it's a full jump in. And it's not that YouTube hasn't, uh, you know, done some stuff, but it just doesn't feel like it's done anything to this scale. So I think to me that that's the interesting bit that where we've seen some other big tech sort of dip their toes and be selective about it that this seems like a move to jump you know sort of all the way into the deep end yeah and i think the other thing to probably consider here is and i'm not an expert on this side but is the infrastructure the tech infrastructure to serve streaming at this sort of scale i imagine it's improved significantly over the last five years it's probably now in a position where that can be done at, at a really high standard whereas possibly before that was a bit of more of a challenge and hence why a lot of a lot of other businesses might be might have been wary to to go for it so yeah look really exciting uh, development if this this does play out and you do see YouTube or an Amazon really become the home of one of the world's most successful sports franchise or sports leagues in the world. Like if you're talking, if they're generating $5 billion from domestic rights, that is right up there with some of the very best leagues in the world in a market that was historically seen, as I said before, as a league that... Well, as in a marketplace that is generally seen as, yeah, it's great, but you're not going to be able to generate the, the income you need from this. Well, it looks like that's really turned the corner to say the least. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, getting some of those details into terms of who's bidding, you know, some of the conversations we've had in the past have been a bit sort of trying to to look inside the, the, the magic eight ball and see what comes up. It sounds like we'll get some details on that. So this probably won't be the last time uh, we, we discuss this, but hopefully we'll have more details to compare and contrast and see what's what's happening. And, you know, we'll move on to another, I guess, newly launched 
platform that, you know, to your point, you and I were speaking earlier, has probably gone a little bit under the radar. People haven't necessarily paid as much attention to. Uh, is there's a new streaming service specifically in Germany for the sports world called S Nation. It's being launched uh, with Christian Seifert, who's the former CEO at the DFL. And it's also you know, the major stakeholder is Axel Springer, who admittedly I had to spend some time looking up who they are exactly, but they're quite a large company. So again, another one of these moves that maybe is a little under the radar, but, you know, why should we be paying attention to this new platform? Well, I remember the, the reaction when uh, Christian Seifert left the DFL was like, what's his next project? You know, he's got someone who's developed the Bundesliga incredibly over his years as CEO. And the expectation is whatever move he makes, it's going to be a big one. Um, and actually caught a lot of people from who I spoke with by surprise that the fact that he moved to a effectively what was a, a startup streaming business domestically focused. Uh, and for those that don't know much about the S Nation, I mean, I'm, I'm light on terms but the focus is supposed to be basically around all non-football content, at least for now anyway. And the reasons for that are pretty obvious. It's pretty low cost. Um, you know, German, the German market is explicitly almost explicitly built around football as its number one, two, and three sports uh, property uh, sports uh, interest. So that's an easy way for them to develop a platform and develop uh, a set of rights that will be at, at some sort of scale that might be interesting to a group of audiences, but won't be at the scale to really have immediate impact to say disrupt the other players for now but my guess is that this is a first step for them is to get up and running do deals like they've done with basketball the bundesliga in the basketball uh, and a few other deals that they've done already and get themselves in a position that they can start getting some momentum then you might see them make a move for those football rights in maybe the next one or two right cycles to come but there's no way that christian seifert's involved and axel springer and for those that don't know too much about axel springer they are a business that turns over you know several billion dollars a year they recently bought politico and a host a host of other publishing businesses they are serious players in the market from a publishing media standpoint so if they're involved and he's involved you know they're not going to be just shooting for tier two tier three sports properties for the long term they are going to be going for a home run down the line so yeah quite an interesting one i think people just need to pay a bit more attention to that that business because i expect them to see more moves um, whether they'll make a move for football they've positioned themselves as i said as not a football led platform so for now i expect them to see just to mop up a lot of other tier two tier three sports with a view that in years from now you'll see them make a bigger move and bigger splash into football so i kind of have two questions off the back of this you know the first one is how many how much similarities do you see with this what uh nent group is doing with Viaplay in the uk who we've discussed a little bit where it's let's find an entry point of how to get into the marketplace how to build an audience uh i guess prove proof of roi before you start going after the big rights you know is, is there a similar strategy of play here obviously Viaplay is not necessarily a domestic market it's going into the uk where it's not its home base but this idea of you know perhaps going after some smaller sports that still have some affinity and then you know kind of working your way up from there it's probably a really good example i think of what we've seen and what we expect i suppose from what we've talked about in previous pods so that's probably the best example in terms of a a strategy um i, I guess every business is in very different situations i suppose where nent and, and Viaplay, i think they're now called the Viaplay group officially so we'll call them that for from here on they have got a, an incredible ecosystem and a business and backing behind them and have been long established in the market. So they're sort of 
already up and running whereas yes nation is really a it is very much in the startup situation just with a lot of money and um expertise behind it to get moving but um yeah there's is probably more of a startup journey so probably a sprinkling of of via play strategy with more of a yeah more of a startup um mentality coming into the market and seeing what they can do with it um so it'd be interesting to see if they can pull it off and if that actually is the gameplay is it to go for football rights in the years to come i expect it has to be because as i said the german market isn't um hasn't really got any other sports that really play a serious role in that marketplace at the moment well that that leads i think quite nicely into my second question which is you know s nation is supposed to be a subscription-based platform and we've obviously had conversations around sort of what should your business model be between svod avod freemium um do you think it, they can be successful without having those premium rights that we've talked about whether that's bundesliga or champions league because the other thing I guess that makes them a little different than via play is it's a sports service. So I guess maybe more like a Fubo TV where like, it's not necessarily like Peacock or Paramount uh, where it's got extra entertainment baked into the package. So with, without the premium sports, would you, you know, what, what, what do you think their thoughts are perhaps on how they're going to be able to make a subscription service work when we've sort of seen that that's not as easy as it sounds? Yeah, look again. It depends on expectations, and I think and access accessibility of that sports property uh, in the market. So, if you're a big fan of basketball, what can you currently watch, and how can you access it in the German market? Again, I'm not an expert, but I'm guessing the top two, uh, you know, top two or three interests from that point of view will be the NBA, maybe the Euro League, uh, and the, the 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 German Bundesliga for basketball. So. It depends on accessibility. I'm, I'm of, we've talked about it before, actually, but I'm of, of an opinion that if your sport is niche and there isn't anywhere else you can get it, um, then I'm of a belief you can charge more of a premium than you can of something like football, which has it's a very competitive market space where you're really fighting for market share. But if you've got the niche, these niche that are rights that nowhere else has them, you can probably charge more of a premium to that that tier fan who really needs them will the will those lower tier fans be willing to pay pay for that no but will they be even willing to pay for that if they weren't really a fan of basketball to begin with probably not as well so i'm of the opinion you can probably charge more of a premium for those rights than you know you see let's say a DAZN initially going into many markets charging a very entry-level price i think they could charge more of a premium for that and go quality over quantity for sure. So we'll shift gears from one startup platform to arguably probably, you know, the most well-known, which is ESPN. And Steve McCaskill, our technology editor here at Sports Pro Media, wrote uh, an opinion piece on Friday talking about tipping points. And, you know, it was quite an interesting piece. If I do say so myself, you can check it out at sportspromedia.com. But basically the article was talking about what would it take for ESPN to reach the tipping point to go all in on direct to consumer. And, you know, Steve did a really good job of going through the article, talking about the past, which actually made me feel really old because he started talking about um, ESPN 360 and, you know, some of these other, I guess, entry points into OTT that I was like, oh my God, I forgot those even existed. You know, free ESPN, obviously a staple in the American marketplace, particularly on linear. It's, it's done some different things. ESPN Plus is obviously a new thing, but 
you know, what what are your thoughts in terms of will ESPN ever reach a point that it goes all in akin to what NBC did when it moved things to Peacock? Um, you know, what would be the different factors at play there for such a move to actually take place? Well, yeah, I, actually, in, in the interview we've got coming up, which is obviously what we're leading to, is with the ESPN Plus. So I'll let that cat out of the bag at the moment. But something we do discuss is, you know, when is that what is that moment going to be? And, and actually the, the CEO of, um, of Disney, uh, Bob Chapek, has basically intimated that they will go in all in at some stage. Uh, and we talk about it in the interview with Russell Wolf, where he's talk, he brings up linear as, as, as one of those key pieces that will eventually become part of that direct-to-consumer proposition. It is interesting, though, part of the discussion I have with him, we talk about niche sports prop, sports rights sports rights and i can't remember the example he used but it was quite a niche property and he's of the opinion that it, they're still happy to keep it a low price for those they just want mass they just want scale so they're of a different strategy to the one we talked about with s nation which i think think is you know it's it's worth mentioning um nonetheless but yeah will, will they ever reach a point of going all in ott from what russell says from what Bob Chapek said in the, in the media after the latest uh, earnings call. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. They will go in all in. When that is, a big question. They've got this incredible cash flow um, coming in through their traditional business. So there's no way they're going to upset that for the immediate future. Uh, are we talking three years, five years, ten years from now? I think you're going to see what they're doing now. It's like inch by inch. They'll move. They'll start moving further and further. Most of their media rights deals now are becoming more open to flexibility in their deals so they can do more things with them, i.e. put some stuff on ABC, put some stuff on ESPN, ESPN Plus, and so forth. And they'll continue to ensure that flexibility exists in all of their deals so they can inch by inch move further and further uh, into this direct-to-consumer relationship that they have come out openly and said that is what their main focus will be you know, moving forward. Yeah, and they also have the huge benefit uh, of having that company people have maybe heard of with Disney um, and being able to bundle some of that together. Because I think what we've talked about is in the past, it's about value. You know, people need to get that's where some of these sports only properties like a DAZN or the S Nation we just discussed, you know, might struggle long term if people are having to pick and choose between how I spend my time, how I spend my money. I'd imagine whenever they do go full D to C, there'll be there's already an initial bundling between Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, but obviously one of those is you can't actually watch ESPN's linear channel, which is where the stuff is. But whenever they do decide to make that choice, I think having that entire Disney portfolio, Star Wars on there. They've got a lot of pieces in their their favor, which I guess helps when you've been the the leading sports broadcaster for almost 30, 40 years now. Yeah, definitely. And even what we talk about in the conversation is even looking at it from the lens of not just direct-to-consumer from a subscription perspective, but just for users coming to their website now, maybe being registered users, what can they do to build a relationship with them strong enough that they continue to be a home and a destination for them to come to? If you're a sports fan, um, that's what they want is create a real home and be the leading destination for sports fans in the US. Uh, and they're doing a really good job of it. So I would expect to see some pretty, you know, it, they will make bigger and bigger moves over the next few years that will really continue to get the whole industry's interest to see how it all performs. But they'll just move when they need to, basically. that That's the ultimate. They'll look at the economics and when it's time, rights issues aside, they'll make that move. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to add, Nick, because obviously Russell's going to be able to say it better than we could. And I'm sure the people want to hear from him directly. So I'll let you kind of sign off or if there's anything else you want to add to that. If not, it's always great to chat with you. 
Yeah, likewise. Well, look, yeah, we, we, the interview we've got today is with Russell Wolf, as I mentioned. He's general manager of ESPN Plus and executive vice president at ESPN. And this does take you really on a deep dive into ESPN and ESPN Plus's strategy. And interestingly, I spoke to Russell, who also headed up their international business for a number of years and talks about that, which I think is quite an interesting story as well, talking about, you know, over the years, I'm, I've lived in Australia, I'm obviously Australian and had a different sort of view and experience of ESPN. We've seen what they've done in the UK, seen what they've done in Mexico and other markets. And we take a little look at that and how that's performed and what that means for ESPN Plus's future overseas and also what ESPN's strategy more widely is outside of the core markets in the US. Uh, look like. So that's a big thing. We talk about DTC. We talk about advertising's role uh, on their platform, which they've been uh, using uh, you know, advertising from, from sort of day one. So it's a really interesting in conversation uh, about all the key things you'd probably want to hear about around a platform like ESPN+. Plus. So um, without any further ado, it's time for me to hand over to me talking to Russell Wolf from ESPN+. Plus. So, Russell, we're going to deep dive today into ESPN Plus for a good chunk of our conversation. But I was equally curious to hear more about your initial role with ESPN. You know, globally, ESPN is seen as this US behemoth uh, sports business that initially it seemed that you were tasked with quite a different project and and helping to grow the business internationally when you joined some 20 years ago. So what exactly did you and ESPN set out to do back then? What was the project I suppose you were trying to tackle? You know, when I, when I first left MTV networks in 1997 to come to ESPN now a quarter of a century ago, um, I was, uh, I was hired to reopen ESPN's corporate office in Hong Kong. And that was on the heels of ESPN and star sports merging uh, and the all the employees who had been at ESPN in Asia were joining the joint venture ESPN Star Sports and so ESPN Inc needed um, a bit of a presence in Asia to oversee Australia New Zealand and Japan but also to sit on the board of directors of uh, ESPN Star Sports and so my first job at the company was hired to do that spent eight weeks in New York getting trained visiting Bristol understanding the culture of the company the rules of the road and then moved to Hong Kong with my then new new wife we're still married 26 years later and uh and and go work me for espn chief for pepsi uh in hong kong uh you know eight weeks before the handover fascinating time to be moving to asia with the handover of, of hong kong to china but also you know it was uh tiger economies and uh and really the dawn of you know lots of western companies doing business in in that part of the world so was your role then effectively to be I don't want to call it an intermediary, but sort of that conduit between what was happening there with that new relationship with Star and, and also the, the American offices, or was it something more, more longer term than that? Yeah, I really had two jobs. One was that piece of it, which was to sit on the board and to work daily with the folks at the Star offices in Asia while my colleagues in New York were sleeping and uh, to be the liaison during the day. Uh, and then and then also to run the businesses in Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, which were not part of ESPN Star Sports. So there were territories that were kept out of the venture for different reasons. Uh, and ESPN had joint ventures in each of those other territories. And so I worked with the with the partners we had in those other territories, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, on different ventures in, in those territories. Um, and 
you know, was the sort of the lead person for those. And then I was one of the, you know, board members for ESPN and Star Sports, which was a big venture. And at the time, ESPN and Star Sports were each losing a lot of money uh, fighting with each other and came together uh, in a venture that ended up lasting 17 years until we sold it back to them. And then when we bought 21st Century Fox, it all ended up back with the Walt Disney Company. So I'm curious with ESPN, obviously it's seen as this, you know, big US sports broadcaster, one of the global leaders in, in best in class um, sports production, broadcasting, etc. And, and that journey you had, that time there to driving the international business, what was the goal then? Was it to grow ESPN and be the US version of itself in other markets? That was the aspirational goal or was it just trying to spread those tentacles and see what happened? I used to, when I, when I, when I returned to New York about four years later, and became the ultimately the managing director of ESPN International. People say, "What's your job?" And I used to say, "My job is to grow the ESPN brand around the world profitably." And you know that that was that was sort of the headline mission. And that meant different things in different territories. At the time, we owned, um, you know, when I first joined the company, we owned a third of Eurosport uh, with TF1 and Canal Plus. We ended up leaving that venture and doing other things in Europe. But the setup we had in Europe was different than what was going on in Australia, which was a joint venture at the time, which was different than Latin America, which had a few joint ventures embedded in it, but was mostly wholly owned, uh, which was totally different than what we were doing in, you know, in the Middle East with Orbit uh, or in Japan with our partners there. And so it was a portfolio approach where we were focused on, you know, making money, but also building the ESPN brand around the world, both on television and ultimately digitally. What were some of the, you know, did you find... Uh, obviously, culturally, you were dealing with a lot of different markets. I guess that would have done business quite differently. Um, did you notice some, some real, what were some of the big challenges, I suppose, in, in going to those markets that you kind of learned along the way, I guess? I mean, some of the challenges were of being a 29-year-old kid who didn't know all of these different cultures. And so the, the best gift I ever got was a book called Kiss, Bow, or Shake, How to Do Business in Over 100 Countries that someone gave me as my wife and I were moving overseas to Asia. And uh, I think the most important part of it was understanding, right? What does a board meeting in Japan look like versus what's a hard conversation in India versus what is or isn't in compliance with local custom, local law, and U.S. law, which we always had to comply with in Argentina or Mexico or Brazil. And so I think I would describe the biggest challenge is understanding, you know, having a grasp on what was or not appropriate, you know, in terms of business customs, but also laws and regulations and lobbying. And, you know, how do you how do you go about doing business in that many countries? I mean, you know, at its peak, you know, we had about 1200 employees and 26 networks around the world, you know, 15 different websites. And we were doing business lo locally in all these different places. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, was your objective to replicate what you had with ESPN in the US? Like we were trying to be, create ESPN in Mexico for Mexicans, by Mexicans with, you know, to have the credibility in Sports Center in Mexico amongst Mexican sports fans, the same way Sports Center had credibility amongst US fans in the US. And so we were taking often formats and models that we'd, we'd, we'd built and in some cases perfected in the US and then taking the culture of that effort, taking the format of that effort, making it comply with any local rules that were different and, you know, and, and bringing it to our teams around the world. And so we thought of, 
Bristol as a place where we could get efficiency. So if we were producing the Champions League for a bunch of different territories, we brought it into Bristol and we did the things we needed to do there and then passed it along. So we thought we thought of it as a as a very efficient production center in Bristol, Connecticut. But we also thought about it as a center of excellence for formats and concepts and ideas where we could then push things out. But at the same time, we started things that then we started in other territories around the world, some of which we brought back to the States in digital, some of which we brought back to the States in other in other concepts. So it was a it was an interesting flywheel, ultimately, of of things. We also ended up offshoring some stuff that we did overseas because it was either more efficient or, you know, closer to where things were happening. And with that localized approach, which makes you know complete sense. <laughs> but did you see that evolve whether, you know, over the years where it became the, you know, I'm Australian. I've been living the last 13 years in the UK and have different experiences of the ESPN brand, but I've always been a follower of American sports and and how they do things as well. So did you, in some markets, maybe the UK and others, did it evolve to being you want to actually be seen as that US destination, sorry, the home of US sports as a destination in certain markets? Or was it always you wanted to try and be a local broadcaster through that whole journey of being an international broadcaster as well? Yeah, you know, it was never our mission to take U.S. sport around the world. You know, it was our mission to grow the brand and be profitable. And in some cases, U.S. sport played a really important part of that. In some cases, U.S. sport was the starting point because that's the rights we had. And we then had to go buy other rights, you know, including at one point we owned two packages of the Premier League in the U.K., right? And in some cases, we did one thing in one in one set of media and a different thing in digital media. So like in Australia, for example, you know, we haven't had the Australian rules football or, you know, or uh, or NRL um, have had some basketball. Uh, but if you look at ESPN as a digital publisher, we're the number one digital publisher in Australia between Crick Info and Footy Tips and ESPN.com, which covers all the U.S. sport and global sport that Australians are interested in. And everything we have is already in English. And so we've got this great body of content. Um, we also bought Footy Tips, which is, you know, Australian tipping site. And so when you look at You bring me back to my younger younger days here, Russ, talking exactly. about all this I'm stuff. Sure it's all, were, all the sure stuff I used to watch and read and consume, yeah. I'm sure you're a footy tipper. But when you think about us, we were doing both, right? We were, we were both bringing the best of US sport, which has real appeal in Australia, but also on the digital side, really serving Australian fans from a local perspective. And so we were trying to do as much appealing to fans as we could. You know, ESPN's mission statement has has for a long time been, you know, serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. And I think that that sort of, you know, clarity of mission about what we're doing doesn't really allow you to get caught up in, well, we're bringing American sport to Australia. We did a lot of that and we brought a lot of American sport around the world, whether it was to Latin America or to, or to you know, Africa um, or to Europe over the years. But it wasn't the imperative. The imperative was to serve fans and, and to bring them things they wanted that we could get. For sure. And so it really leads in nicely to you taking on the role, an incredibly important role at ESPN to, to drive the, the development of ESPN+. Plus. And, and my again, first uh, experience of ESPN+, Plus was the content, the publishing side, was probably where the roots of it began, I guess, in a lot of instances, what you're serving through your digital channels. And now that's obviously evolved dramatically from where it first kicked off. But now that's sitting alongside this still massive linear and cable offering that it uh, generates, obviously, the majority of cash flow today for the organization. But I guess I'm curious in two things, really, in this new role. What is ESPN Plus's purpose today? And how does that differ to say what the, the purpose of it is going to be in five to 10 years for Disney? 
Yeah, I think I think you have to go back to think about who we've been in streaming and who we've been in direct to consumer historically before you get to the moment of ESPN Plus, right? And so if you go back to ESPN Broadband, ESPN 360, those were streaming services. They they weren't pay streaming services. They were streaming services that were um, that were either open or authenticated against your MVPD or DMVPD subscription. In 2015, we took the night the to 2015 Cricket World Cup direct to consumer with a pro, with a with a product called uh, ESPN Cricket 2015, where you could the only way you could get the Cricket World Cup in America was from ESPN Cricket 2015. It was a direct to consumer product. It was 99.99 for the entire Cricket World Cup, a project that I led from inside of ESPN. This predates the launch of ESPN Plus, and so we did that direct to consumer prod, product project. And then you think about ESPN three, which at the time had eight to 10,000 events streaming to fans based on your broadband subscription. And you then lead up to ESPN's investment in, you know, in initial investment in BAMTech and then further investment in BAMTech and the launch of ESPN Plus, uh, which was meant to be a direct-to-consumer streaming service, you know, different in business model than the streaming we've been doing. And by the way, in addition to that streaming that I just described that we were already doing, of course, we also had a TV Everywhere authentication. So every cable subscriber, every satellite subscriber, every DMVPD subscriber can watch the ESPN linear channels on the app, either on their connected TV device or on you know, their phone or the website just by entering their credentials from their from their cable operator or satellite operator. And so, you know, the streaming heritage of ESPN and the Walt Disney Company is quite is quite strong in advance of the launch of the different business model, which is you know, which is really the continuation of what ESPN did with Cricket 2015, which was just a standalone event. But now, now you get to ESPN Plus, uh, you know, in its launch. Um, I wasn't involved in launch. I was still running ESPN International, um, and it was fall of um, 2018 when I uh, it launched in April, and I I joined in October, uh, November of 2018 as a general manager of ESPN Plus. Um, joining the team at BAMTech, then Disney, now then Disney Streaming Services, now called Disney Disney Streaming. And I think the evolution that you saw with ESPN from where we went to to where we are has been part of a broader philosophical shift, you know, for the Walt Disney Company, as first articulated by Bob Iger and continued by Bob Chapek today. And so I think when you when you think about where we're going as a company, I mean you look at the Disney bundle and it's the perfect example, right? You've got ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, and Hulu bundled together for fans. You can also buy them each on a standalone basis. But the best value proposition we have to fans and 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 entertainment junkies and Disney fans and people who are rabid for what's on Hulu is when you get the three services together. And so we're quite, you know, we're quite uh, excited about the evolution we've made and also about the position we have both in the in the industry, but also amongst amongst consumers, when you look at where we've where we've landed at the moment, and it's we feel we feel quite good about it. Um, I think you heard you know you heard Bob Chapek talk about it um, yesterday on the earnings call. You know, in terms of where we are and where we're going. You know, in terms of in terms of streaming, and you know we're we're committed to the ESPN Plus part of part of the part of the business. And we're also preparing for future when we might take ESPN, the linear networks, direct to consumer. A fan would be able to get those directly from us as well as from uh, the MVPD and DMVPD environment. And what we're doing is, you know, 
looking for the moment when it makes sense for the business and shareholders, but also build, continuing to build out the capabilities we have, continuing to build out the number of direct-to-consumer subscribers we have. And you know, if and when we make that pivot, we feel like we'll be in an outstanding position uh, to do that. And you know, I feel I feel like everything we're doing today in you know creating a service for fans, you know, which as we said the other day, you know, has over 22 million subscribers, is both a business unto itself today and in preparation for what the future might look like. And uh, I think we're uniquely positioned. The the big question mark everyone's obviously has has on their lips is yeah when is that time that uh, as uh, Bob Chapit put it to pull the trigger on that situation and i think everyone's going to be sitting eagerly waiting to find uh, to see when that does does happen and, and i think he mentioned in that earnings call about being positioned to appeal to the super fan um that's really what espn's sort of secret sources i suppose that you can really serve them better than anyone else uh in the market so i mean you intimated it there but i'm just curious then is espn plus itself do you think that's the conduit for that trigger pulling or is it going to be espn plus sitting as part of that bigger another offering which is that pull the trigger moment for espn well i mean fans can already get espn plus directly from us so you know the question that everybody keeps asking is when will they be able to get you know the linear networks from from you directly and i think you know while there's no specific timeline to share um and bob's been very clear that we'll do it when it makes financial sense those linear networks are enormous driver of revenue and cash flow today, the Walt Disney Company. Um, lots of other people entering the streaming businesses or in the streaming businesses would love to have that, you know, cash flow to fund other things they're doing. And we have it. Um, and I would say that, you know, the next version of the world will will have all that stuff together in some way. But, you know, we haven't announced any plans. And, and Bob was very clear that, you know, if and when we make that pivot, you know, it'll be to serve fans and because it makes sense for our shareholders. Yeah, no worries. The latest reports, as you mentioned, were over 22 million subscribers. For context, for those that didn't see the numbers, up 1 million from last quarter. That's 62% up year on year. I'm curious, how is that tracking to expectations? Obviously, growth is great and numbers going up is what everyone wants to hear. Is that what you guys were predicting at this stage or were you thinking you know, you'd see growth a bit faster? We've obviously seen other streaming businesses have some, well, some uh, below expectations uh, on their recent earnings call. How are you guys seeing the numbers tracking from your point of view? You know, we, we don't generally share what our expectations are, you know, but I'll just tell you, we're really pleased with where we sit. Um, and we feel like, you know, we're reaching a really strong and good number of fans uh, who are loving the service and using it a lot. And the other part I would say is, you know, you have to remember that ESPN Plus sits inside the ESPN app, right? One of our great advantages in building this business is the relationship we already have with sports fans, both on linear television, which, as I said earlier, drives strong revenue and, and cash flow, um, but also on the digital side of our business. When we have a peak month of 120 million uniques coming into the ESPN ecos digital ecosystem, you got to think about that as like the top of our funnel. And... We're then servicing content to them, showing them experiences, giving them a chance to click and buy, um, and helping them understand what they get with ESPN+. And I think, you know, when you think about how that serves our ESPN Plus business, it serves it amazingly well. And that's, that's where we are, you know, 
finding ourselves at the intersection of our existing businesses and our new businesses and how those things fit together. So, you know, all you have to do is turn on um, ESPN on a Saturday night, 12 Saturday nights a year at 8 p.m. when there's a UFC pay-per-view and see two hours of prelim fights happening, you know, on ESPN, uh, linear television, also simulcast on ESPN Plus, but on linear television for people who don't have ESPN Plus, reminding them that Conor McGregor or Volkanovsky you know, anybody else is going to be fighting in pay-per-view starting at 10 o'clock. And if you don't sign up now, when that thing starts at 10 o'clock, you won't be watching the biggest fights of the night 12 nights a year. And so we bring all of that together. And if you go, you know, and Nick, if you go into the app at the same time, you can see the sort of echo chamber of promotion that's happening for that specific event. By the way, no different than, you know, if you look at something like, Man in the Arena, which is, you know, our most successful original to date, nine episodes produced, aired on ESPN Plus. Then those nine episodes also were added to Disney Plus and Hulu, all in advance of the 10th episode only being available back on ESPN Plus. And then the night before we launched the 10th episode on ESPN Plus, the two nights before, there was a linear airing of one through nine for people who'd missed it to get to get them ready for episode 10 with Tom Brady. And so... I feel like we are um, highly collaborative across our ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, Hulu family, all sitting inside of Disney Streaming, um, led by Michael Paul. And we're also quite strategic about how we're moving content around to both expose fans, but also to entice fans. When we think about digital, it is a direct-to-consumer business. We have a direct, you know, we have a direct relationship with the consumers, even when they're not paying us you know, a fee for, you know, the product, the direct consumer relationship where they're registering their fantasy picks, they're registering for tournament challenge, they're they're telling us who their favorite teams are because they want us to customize their experience. We think of that as a direct to consumer experience as well, not always a direct consumer subscription mm-hmm. business, but having an ecosystem that 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 allows people to come in and just use certain products without being registered, registering and we enhance their experience. Or, you know, paying us and we then give them a whole other experience is a is a um, is an ecosystem that we've built that we feel really good about. Yeah, it makes complete sense, and and um, I understand the context there. I'm curious that you talked about about the content side and programming and using different types of content in different ways. And now in the Disney business, you have ESPN Plus, you have the linear channels, you obviously have ABC alongside that, you have Hulu in there as well. How on earth do you guys work out what goes where? Like when you're looking at a set of live sports rights, is there some sort of master plan or framework that if it ticks certain uh, demographic uh, relevancy that it goes to this product more or other? Or is it just maximizing the, the monetary value you can get out of those rights or audience reach? How on earth do you work that out? I'm, I know it's, it's probably very collaborative and you guys are all working together and all heading the right direction, but there must be some sort of methodology there that's well, either really complex or really difficult to, to navigate between you know, people with different objectives, I suppose. A, it's a good question. And B, people have been asking it for the entire 25 years I've been at the company because <laughs> the, the optimization of the content across platforms has been happening since... We first launched ESPN2 and like, what, what's going to be on ESPN2 versus ESPN1 and why? And so it's been an interesting, you know, journey the company's been on around the same exercise, which is 
what's the right answer for where the content should go? And I think that I think the ultimate answer has been it's about serving fans and and driving shareholder value, right? And it's that balancing act of 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 those two things, which I think we've done a really good jo- job over the years. And it's become more of an opportunity and more complex as we've launched more ESPN branded platforms, and we we also work hard to you know put the the right content on ABC, which is a large platform, and you'll see sports on ABC, you know, the ESPN on, on ABC, you know, context and 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 content is is really important. Sometimes as a standalone, but sometimes in concert with what's going on on ESPN. And so you've got the team led by Burke Magnus, who leads programming um, for for ESPN, and Burke and his team, including John Lasker, who's the head of programming for ESPN Plus, and Emily Horowitz, and that team working with Freddie Roland, who runs scheduling. That group of people are constantly building the schedule and looking to optimize the schedule to to maximize ad revenue, to maximize ratings, to max. But you only have so much space in each place, and so as you look around, you you need to. It's a. It, I mean, you didn't say puzzle, Nick, but you you you, you hinted at it. It's a puzzle, um, yeah. and obviously it has to fit in with our priorities. We're trying to grow ESPN Plus as well. And so it starts off with our rights deals and having maximum flexibility in our rights deals to move content to the platforms that we need to put it on. Uh, it has to do with our ability to market and, and take fans to those places. Uh, and it also, it's about putting the right content in the right place. Like PGA Tour Live is a perfect ESPN Plus product, right? It's multi-screen. It's four days long, like there, there isn't room for a piece of content like that on linear television, right? And one of the beauties of, of, of our digital business broadly, but ESPN Plus specifically, is the capacity is infinite, right? We could have the 11,000 events that are there today, or we could have 50,000 events. It's just, it's just, you know, buying more capacity to push more events down the, down the pipe. And so we have the ability to do more. The question is, what's the next thing you do? What's the marginal value of doing that? And how does that fit into both the core big content idea part of ESPN Plus and the long tail part of ESPN Plus? And, you know, people sometimes like to cast ESPN Plus as, oh, that's a niche service. And I, I always laugh when they say that because, you know, I neither consider, you know, a thousand out of market NHL games or, you know, 75 exclusive NHL games, nor the FA Cup final, nor, you know, 12 pay-per-view fights including like a conor mcgregor fight that drives a million pay-per-views to be niche niche content um nor do i think about you know peyton manning doing peyton's places or tom brady doing man in the arena as as that kind of content so i like to think about it when we're sitting around with the programming team and with burke and john lasker and and emily harwitz and that team as a we're doing both like we've got big events on espn plus you know big college football games big um fa cup final this weekend and we've got ivy league squash which by the way if you want to watch ivy league squash you think espn plus is a bargain and and we're and that long tail part of the business is an important part of what we're doing uh and you know brings in fans and then when they come in for to watch their grandson granddaughter daughter you know sister play you know in the aac or or a big 12 volleyball game they then go, oh, I didn't know you had the entire 30 for 30 library exclusively on ESPN+. Plus. I love 30 for 30s. And so it's our job that when someone comes in either for a big event or for you know something that's more on the long tail side of things, 
to quickly help them understand what they've gotten themselves into. Because people come in generally for for a thing. I come in because I want to watch Tom Brady. I come in because I want to watch my fighter fight on on UFC. I come in because I want to watch a women's volleyball tournament, women's softball tournament. I come in because I'm a PGA Tour fan. And then we want to entice and delight them with the breadth of what we have. And as you know, Nick, as someone who, who looks at it, you could spend a lot of time wandering around ESPN Plus and being quite entertained. For sure. And you interest, it's a really interesting point you, you raised there about an, a niche product or a property like, like squash. One of the things that we've seen in other markets and other sports properties is the more data and insight you can get around you, the way your sports you know, where your sports rights are being consumed is what is moving the needle what is having an impact with driving subscribers to your platform and and keeping them and drawing ratings etc and what we've seen in some sports streaming services is reducing the investment into um, covering some of those more niche sports properties because they know they don't really make a, a discernible impact in driving subscribers to the platform. And some have actually really pulled back on that and said, focused on a couple of major sports and doubling down on those. Is Do you see ESPN Plus as you sort of intimated it, but I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sort of being a bit of both, you know, focusing on being a home destination for major sports properties, but equally looking at opportunities to bring in sort of niche audiences that might come in have a different a different objective a different way into the platform via squash or other sports and then keeping them through the mainstream uh, side of things as well you know i'll take you back to a story when we launched espn in the uk i'll answer your question but let me take you back to a story when we launched espn in the uk um as a subscription service that you had to buy on top of sky you know on sky after you bought sky sports right i used to describe it as a pile of long tail. Russell, why'd you buy the Russian soccer for the UK? Answer, we bought the Russian soccer for the UK because there's 150,000 Russian soccer fans living in the UK. And if we put the Russian soccer on ESPN in the UK, ESPN television in the UK, we're going to attract, we we had a guess, uh, X percent of those fans, which will be critical to this. And it's a long season. And so they'll come in, in August and they'll leave in May. Right? And I, I once described ESPN pay service in the UK as obviously we had the Premier League, which is at the highest end. And then we had some content in the middle and then a pile of long tails. And those fans are avid fans. And when you get them in there, they watched other things. And the way I think about it is you have to be strategic about what different things do for your business, right? You know, one big event that people come in for and then leave a huge amount of people come in and then leave at the end of the of the end of the event and don't don't stay for the second month does one thing for you an event where people come in and stay with you for seven eight months does a whole different thing for you and so i think our deep understanding of what it takes to bring somebody in what they do when they're there how long they stay how we get them to not leave or when they leave how we get them to come back is critical to our success and i think we've done a really nice job of building that capability over the last 36 almost 48 months here and when the price is the same for the service whether you're whether you're a fan of the patriot league or the ivy league or bundesliga they have the same value to us you know they're all paying the same price and so we're bringing them in we're, we're opening lots of front doors and we're trying to make the exit door really small trying to bring them bring like maybe like through all these different doors and only have one way out and try to encourage people that it's not worth it to go Stick with us. We've got stuff that you didn't really know you 
we didn't really know we had. It's not why you came here. But boy, once you get into it, you're going to love it. So my theory has always been that actually the, the niche sports, let's say the Russian Premier League example is, 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 is an example, that actually those fans are underserved, right? They don't have access. If they live in the UK, there's 150,000 supporters. They don't have access to it. So by you supplying that to them, actually they'd be willing to pay a lot more for that service because it's it's you know something that it, they can't get anywhere else. Whereas if you have the Premier League in the UK, it is spliced and diced and, and cut up into different packages. And so you can get served in different ways and you have to determine how much of a fan you are to determine how much you want to spend on watching all of that content. Um, so I'm curious, have you ever looked at it that way in terms of having a more focus point around pricing more specific sets of sports properties for different types of fan sets? Or has it always been like, we just want to, we just want to get you in uh, and then keep you is, is the main objective. You know, I think we've, I mean, I mean, I guess I'd say two things as I think about, you know, since we've launched this product, we've always thought about going back to our mission, serving fans, but also serving underserved fans, right? And, and giving them things they can't get anywhere else. Critical part of the business. But also having the breadth and depth in the areas that matter to be, I mean, we are the number one sports streaming service in the in the country and in the world at the moment, you know, you know, in terms of the number of subscribers we have and the and the and the range and breadth and depth of sports that we have. I think simplicity goes a long way in this business. Um, and you know lots of discussions about should we have button farms? Like when you when you come to the marketing landing page, you have to make a decision what you want. You know, how many choices do we want to give people? And you know, the simplicity of do you want an annual package? Do you want a monthly package? Do you want it standalone? Or do you want the bundle? I think is is quite elegant, and we feel like it does a really good job for us. And so, yes, we could probably charge a little bit more to fans who wanted to watch this or that, but it then complicates both the the marketing, but also the product experience inside. And when you when you get inside ESPN Plus, you know, on a Saturday in September and October. What's available to you is is unbelievable. You know, between European football, college football from America, um, the NFL content that we have on our on our platform. You know, we'll have our first. We just announced we'll have our first exclusive NFL football game on ESPN Plus um, this fall. And but even before that, we have NFL primetime every Sunday night with Chris Berman, a show that had been on linear television that we brought back to life and 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 put on ESPN Plus. We've got Peyton's Places, right? You've got detail. You've got all of this NFL content that an NFL fan, you know, loves alongside of the unbelievable and huge amount of NFL content we have on our linear on our linear networks and on ESPN.com and the ESPN app, including fantasy football. And so I think the best experience a fan can have, and you hinted at it earlier, Nick, when you asked about, you know, our direct-to-consumer business grew out of our our editorial business. We had this business called the ESPN Insider that people were paying us for a set of articles that you could only get if you were an insider. When we launched ESPN Plus, we migrated those insiders into ESPN Plus. And we took that pay service and 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 moved it inside of ESPN Plus. And so that was a good example. We could have kept that separate and you could have paid extra for that. But we decided that this was going to be our offering. You know, And when you think about ESPN Plus, it's events, it's studio, it's original entertainment, and it's premium editorial and tools. And you know, it's worth talking about those premium editorial and tools for just a second because there are people who want to read those those writers, and certain writers you can only get their 
analytics pieces. And when they break news, it's it's you know it's on the open ESPN.com. It's you know it's you know news is commoditized in some way, and we we're, we're keep pushing it out that way. And we're the I think we're the best at that. But long form pieces, analytical pieces, you know, some feature stories that are only available on ESPN Plus. I mean, you don't see too many. I mean, I know we I know everybody calls us a streaming service, and we fall into the trap of calling ourselves a streaming service. But ESPN Plus is a lot more than a streaming service, right? Because while you can stream live events, studio originals, you can also only read these articles if you're an ESPN Plus subscriber. And you can only use certain fantasy and tournament challenge tools if you're an ESPN Plus subscriber. And so that premium editorial and tools piece is quite interesting and quite different from anything anybody else is doing in either the sports space or the entertainment space, you know, in terms of having components that are beyond streaming. And I think that's one of the great, you know, sort of advantages of coming from the heritage of ESPN.com and the ESPN app is they are, they are story based, they are score based, they are fantasy based. You know, we've got, I mean, this past year we launched exclusive fantasy leagues for ESPN Plus subscribers with different prizing. That if you're an ESPN Plus subscriber and you you play fa- in these fantasy leagues, you can win different prizing um, to continue to demonstrate to ESPN Plus subscribers that you know membership has its privileges. Definitely. And obviously ESPN, therefore, and ESPN Plus is, is becoming a, a, a real destination, a home for fans of, of sports, not just a place to watch it, which is obviously a really important aspect of the business. And I'm curious, you know, we're hearing a lot around you know, the monetization piece. We're talking about the subscription as a core part of it. I'm just curious how you guys are looking at the advertising and how, how that fits into ESPN Plus's offering. We're hearing it everywhere that everyone is looking more and more at how they integrate advertising into the mix now. Uh, I, I'm not sure what ESPN's stance is on through the ESPN Plus's platform around advertising. And what's the, what's, how do you guys look at that? You know, we've always had advertising on ESPN Plus. Our live events are, are look just like live events on, on linear television. You know, same similar formats. Um, and whether you're watching a Major League Baseball game or you're watching, you know, or you're watching, uh, or you're watching, you know, PJ Tour Live, or you're watching the Bundesliga or La Liga, or, you know, the newest addition to our stable, the NHL, you've got the kind of ad experience that fans are used to. And that, you know, is, is, is standard for, for a sporting event. So we've been, we've been in that space right from the very beginning. Um, we've, we've, we've done some more sponsorship on the original entertainment side of things. You continue to see us do more of that. Um, and as as other services on the entertainment side get into the advertising side of things, you know, we'll continue to, to do what we do here. And it's become, you know, it's a growing part of it's a growing part of our business as the subscriber base um, grows. And of course, you know, targeting and, you know, giving Rita Farrow and the Disney ad sales team, which is the same team that sells the linear television networks. It's all in one organization, the Walt Disney Company. So mm. the team that Rita Farrow runs, Disney ad sales, is selling ABC Entertainment, sports on, you know, ESPN on ABC, all of the ESPN linear networks, Hulu, as well as ESPN Plus, and all of the digital advertising that people are buying on ESPN.com and the ESPN app. And so, you know, we're headed into the upfronts next week here in the U.S. That Disney ad sales team will present to the world of buyers, you know, our range of offerings, you know, from linear entertainment to addressable entertainment to um, to all sports, whether linear or ratings-based or addressable. And so we feel really good about sort of both the hand we have in terms of what we have to sell, but also about how we go about selling it. And advertising is increasingly addressable. There's been more addressable advertising opportunities than ever before. And streaming enables that future 
you know, whether that's on Hulu or Disney Plus or, you know, or ESPN Plus. Another area to to generate, I guess, an increase of uh, average revenue per user or share of wallet is around betting, right? We're hearing betting is at the is on the the tip of everyone's lips uh, across, particularly across the US, and everyone's looking at it in different ways, shapes, and and forms. Bob Iger, who was obviously the previous CEO, sort of intimated that wouldn't you guys wouldn't be looking too much at that space other than maybe some base partnerships. But um, Bob Chapek more recently has said. You know, everyone seems to want betting, betting involved and the fans want betting involved. So it looks like ESPN will do a bit around that space. What are your plans around that? I believe you guys have some relationships already with some, uh, some existing businesses already. Yeah, I mean, we have different relationships with different parts around the world. Some of them date back a long time ago in, in, in places like Australia and the UK. I, I guess I would tell you three things about betting. I, I believe the, if you ask fans today, we're probably the, mo- the most trusted brand name in betting even though you can't place a bet with us today. They rely on us to give them insight and thoughts about who's hurt, who's healthy, who's playing well, who's not playing well, what this team generally does when they play that team, who you expect to win this weekend, right? And so we're an important part of that ecosystem, regardless of what role we play in it. We do have existing relationships with uh, with Caesars and DraftKings, who are both you know different deals that we have with them. And I think you'll continue to see us to push into this space um, which is in part about, again, you know, it, it always sounds silly when we come back to our mission statement, but when you have a mission statement that's as clear as ours, as fans want to, as, as fans do more of this, as it becomes legal in more states, we're going to do more of it. But we already have an enormous amount of content that serves betters and also, you know, helps them be better at what they're trying to do, you know, and including shows like Better Days and Daily Wager. I mean, there's there's content, you know, we've got a studio in Las Vegas. I mean, you've seen a lot of that forward motion happen already. I don't have any um, any uh, forward looking uh, plans that I'm going to share with you today about what we're going to do on a more a more broad basis. Um, but I would say that, you know, ESPN hasn't been left behind in in too many trends over the over the 25 years I've been at the company or the over 40 years we've been in business. So very true. I guess, well, you may not be able to answer there, but I guess in terms of the, you've seen uh, Fubo TV, we've seen DAZN, et cetera, and other businesses actually creating a direct integration of betting into the the streaming platform and in the live product itself. You may not be able to answer that, but do you see that as something that you will at least will be investigating, that prospect of bringing that into into the live experience for uh, for a consumer on ESPN Plus? Or is that a step further than you would go for now? Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna tell you about our plans in this space. Um, but trust me that we continue to to look at the best way to serve fans, and we already have opportunities across our site where fans can you know can link out to go place bets with with the people they want to place their bets with today. So, I uh, I think we I leave it at that. No worries. Now, I said your background. Obviously, you spent a lot of time managing the international side of the business. I'm really curious of what the future of ESPN Plus is, particularly internationally. Obviously, there's a lot of growth opportunity just in the US alone, where your roots uh, and your primary business is. But you're building all these relationships with major rights holders and sports properties, particularly through the ESPN Plus platform. You know, what is the what is the the objective there internationally? Is there a, a plan to really scale this and, and go into different markets? So I guess I would say two things. I mean, these relationships that we're that we have are not new with these rights holders. We've been doing this for a very long time. Um, and and by the way, some of us have been actually doing it ourselves for a very, for a very long, very long time. And so in some ways, this is 
getting into business with people we've been in business with for a long time for a new part of our business, um, which I think is, again, one of the things that, that rights holders love about working with us is, you know, we're taking them to new places as we go to new places. Um, what I would say is on the international sports side, we've got different models in different territories and we always have. Uh, and so you've got the ESPN linear networks down in Latin America, which are now also part of Star Plus, which is the second brand that we launched in Latin America. So you have you have Disney Plus and Star Plus, and then you have a combo bundle of those two services. You've got sports direct-to-consumer content sitting inside that direct-to-consumer offering in, in Latin America. And so you've got the ESPN brand sitting branded content sitting inside of that um, inside of that vessel. And the ESPN app and site are just like we did here, are being used to drive people to Star Plus. Right. And so you got the advantage of, of using our existing digital platforms. I mean, if you go to India, we've got Hotstar with the IPL. So we're already in the direct-to-consumer sports business. Uh, and, you know, in different parts of Europe, the pre-existing Fox businesses that are now part of the Walt Disney Company have, you know, have real sets of sports rights. And so while, while the, the model and the business and the brand might be different in different places, the philosophies and strategies and theories where you, that you're seeing us um, execute here are going to continue to be explored and deployed as they make sense on a territory by territory basis. And you've got leaders in each part of the world who run the Walt Disney Company in each part of the world. Uh, and those folks, you know, are, are over Disney Plus and sports content, um, whether that sits inside of a um, ESPN branded vessel or a Hotstar branded vessel or an ESPN branded um, tile inside of a Star Plus, you know, app. Okay, sure. So, so most of that that philosophy or the focus on the growth of ESPN Plus and the iterations of it is a, a localized approach, which obviously you spend a lot of time uh, working through over the years as well. Um, I guess one one sort of final question that I have that I wanted to run by you is really on the on the direct to consumer side. Particularly, we've seen all these different sports properties really going all in themselves and creating digital to consumer uh, propositions. Um, but we've equally seen a number of these 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 platforms shift their relationships back to the broadcaster. You talked about PGA Tour Live as an example. Uh, UFC is obviously heavily involved with you guys. WWE going in with Peacock on the US was quite a, an eye-opener to a lot of people. What What's your take on, I guess, the, the future of that space? Do you think we'll see more and more of back as you back to the future, I suppose, in, in sports partnering up more closely with broadcasters because the reality is the broadcasters do it better in terms of marketing and selling and going direct to direct and marketing a product than they can themselves or do you think it's just going to be one of these yo-yo things that we go up and down with fragmentation of rights and 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 serving serving audiences in different ways through from here on i mean i think in some ways nick it, it depends on what the league or federation or rights holder or content creators ambition is right and so we can't tell them what their ambitions should be, but we can show them the benefits of being part of ESPN Plus. We can't tell them whether or not they should. We can't tell. We can. I mean, but we generally don't say you shouldn't do this, but, but we show them the benefit of, of being with us. And so when you look at, you know, NHL.TV, which was a standalone product previously, by the way, which we ran for them. We were the BAMTech was the was the operator of that. Mm. We took all of that content, almost all of that content, and put it inside of ESPN Plus. So you get a thousand out of market games inside of ESPN Plus. Um, and you're seeing it's not only available to the 
hundreds of thousands of people who would have been available to her. It's available to 22 million people. And so as a league, you get excited about that, right? You look at PGA Tour Live, which was in a bunch of different places, but one of which was directly from the PGA Tour, today sitting exclusively inside of ESPN Plus with over 22 million subscribers, right? And so you feel pretty good about that exposure you're getting, you know, in a service that has a broad uh, subscriber base. And so I, th I think we're proud of the, the conversations we have with rights holders. We're straightforward and we're, we're forthright about what we're trying to do. And I think we're generally pretty good at helping them understand why we think being part of this would be good for, would be good for them and their business in a way, you know, in a way that works. But also remember like consumers only have a threshold for so many subscriptions. And I don't know what that N is or that X is, right? Yeah. And, but I know it's not 20 sports ones and five entertainment. Yeah. Right. And the Disney bundle is one that has sports and entertainment and family and movies and TV all together. If you're a golf fan, a hockey fan, a football fan, and a one, one European league fan, and you, and you had to go out and buy four different services on top of whatever entertainment streaming services you want, that might be right at the edge of, of what you would be willing to do. And, you know, I think, I think what we've done is we've, 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 we've served fans really well by bringing a lot of this content together to one, to one place. And I guess that's why things like bundling is going to be such an important part of this in the future, because yeah, as you said, it can't be, we're not going to be in a situation where everyone's just going to be willing to sign up 20 to 20 different subscription products. The reality is that's not going to be the place. Yeah. We've met, and I think we've met fans and sports fans and entertainment junkies where they are, right? You want just ESPN plus you can have just ESPN plus you want the Disney bundle. It's the best offer we have. Come get it. Right. And I think when, when I wake up in the morning, Nick, and I think about what the best experience someone can have as a sports fan in, our, in, in the U S is it's having an MVP or DMVPD subscription where you get all of the ESPN linear networks. That service also comes with the ABC television network, which has great sports. And when you put ABC and ESPN together, an amazing accumulation of things, you should authenticate that subscription. You should go onto the ESPN app and put in your credentials so that when you're not at home, you can pick up your iPad and you can watch anything that we have on either, you know, on either ABC or ESPN there. And then go one step further and buy either ESPN Plus or the Disney Bundle and add ESPN Plus to that. And when you think about the number of events you could watch on any given day, and if God forbid there's not an event that you want to watch, the amount of other ESPN content, whether that's Sports Center or Get Up in the Morning on Linear or one of the, you know, over 130 um, 30 for 30 films, you know, while you're sitting at an airport that you could watch, you know, that's the best experience. And when you do it at home, on an Apple TV on a Saturday afternoon and you can take Apple TV and do a multicast and put up four different events on your screen inside the ESPN app and you can mix into that app experience one event from ESPN, ESPN2 and then two from ESPN Plus you know that's the best experience when you, when you have all when you when you're when you're a customer of ours who has 
both our linear networks through an MVP or DVMVT and a subscription to ESPN Plus. And when you're playing with your Apple TV, you can actually, and other platforms, you can actually multicast them. And on a college football Saturday, to put up four college football games, one that's sitting on ABC, one that's on ESPN, one on ESPN2, and one on ESPN Plus, that's a pretty great sports fan. I mean, you're, you're in your own sports bar. You're in your own sports bar as long as you got, as long as you got a cold beer before you sat down. Sounds like a good place to be for any super fan, and you've got me excited about it. And I don't even live in the US, so that's a good sign. But Russell, that is all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you, mate. Take care.